Good morning. If you have a Bible, you can open it to John chapter 1 and begin to get used to saying that every week for the rest of the year. <laughs> Not chapter 1, though. Actually, that'd be crazy. Uh, we'll work our way through the whole gospel. While you're turning there, I want to um, update you on a, a few different things. Today is the beginning of what we're calling the Together Initiative. Um, and I don't know your background in church, uh, uh, in your experience with these type of things, um, but I will tell you that I'm a little nervous talking about it. And the reason why that is, um, I'll be very honest, is I despise, and I think that is an appropriate word, I don't like sales pitches and any form of manipulation that takes place in church. I'm not here to talk to you or talk you into giving. That's just not the goal. Uh, don't want to manipulate, don't want to change things that way. We're not here to wow you, to move you emotionally. The goal of this initiative that we're calling the Together Initiative is simple. This is the logical next step coming from our congregation's vote together to move forward by expanding our facilities here and preparing ourselves to plant the church. This is the logical next step for us to take. I'll say that one more time. This is the logical next step in carrying out the decision that our church family voted on with 99% approval to expand our facilities and prepare to plant a church. It really is that simple. Like This is the next step. We need to gather some information. We need to gauge where the church family is at in relationship to that. And so we've launched this. And so with the launch of this comes this booklet that you received. If you got that, I hope you all received it. If you didn't, you can grab one at the table in the lobby. This will give you some information about this initiative, and it comes with a commitment card that can be ripped off on the inside cover there um, as well. And side note, I, I would want you to know, just because I, I like small details, when it comes to this particular initiative, both the devotional guide uh, that you can grab, the prayer guide that I'll talk about in a moment, and uh, this booklet were designed in-house. The design came. We didn't hire it out. That's not to say that we don't hire things out, i.e. the new logo, but it was an interesting just uh, detail that I appreciated. Uh, these were designed in-house by people here in our church family, and so we're grateful for that. When it comes to the Together Initiative, a couple things I'd want you to keep in mind. Number one is our sincere goal is 100% participation. For everybody who would say that this is their church family to participate in this initiative over the next two years together. From children, getting creative and doing different things, all the way through the oldest members of our church family, everybody together participating in this initiative to expand the facility, to reach more people in our community, but in addition, uh, preserve our values of being a family-oriented culture here at New Hope and prepare to plant a like-minded, uh, independent Christian church. Uh, and so th these are the goals, and we would love to see participation from everyone. In addition, I would want you to know that while you see a spot on the commitment card for your name, that is almost encouraged to be anonymous. We put the name part on the card because some people have requested to be able to put their name on the card, and we want to honor that. But it is by no means at all expected. I anticipate most of the people in the church family filling out that card anonymously, and that's okay. Um, we trust each other here. We just need to gather information to gauge where we're at and what we're capable of doing moving forward. And, and please take note that these cards that you turn in, they're one per family. Uh, so if everybody in the family turned one in, it'd throw off um, all of the information that we're trying to gather. 
The commitment card is for two years. It's a two-year commitment above your normal tithes. And so what you normally tithe, you and your family, uh, if we would together, my family will do this as well. We'll go, we'll spend some time praying using the prayer guide that's been developed for that. We'll decide, hey, this is what we give normally, and we'll fill that out on the card, and we'll say above what we normally give over the course of the next two years, here's what we're capable of participating in as a family, together with the rest of the church family moving forward. And you'll fill that part out. It can be filled out based on your personal schedule. Um, You could say, hey, here's non-cash, and there's options for that that you can come and talk to people about. Here's our, what we're able to give over the next two years in one lump sum, or here it is broken out over the course of those 24 months. Um, you can fill that out. Now, the last thing that I'll say here about that is this. Maybe don't fill that out today. Some of you have already participated in the giving, and again, there's nothing like, I'm not telling you what to do, but if you've already participated, that's great. You can fill it out and turn it in, but if you haven't decided what you and your family can do, I would encourage you to spend the next two weeks praying. Like, Really? Spend time, include the kids, circle up, read through the prayer guide that we've designed and just pray together and say, hey, as a family, what are we able to do here? What are we going to do? And then two weeks from today on the 22nd or the 29th, those two Sundays, you can come and we're not going to do something in the service that's this big thing like, oh, turn in, none of that. Just at some point on those two Sundays or before then, if that's where you land, you can take that card that's filled out and put it in one of the offering boxes around the building. It's that simple. And we want to keep it that simple on purpose. Um, That's one one of the goals. In addition to the Together Initiative, or maybe even as a part of the Together Initiative, you'll notice that we've redesigned some things, the new church logo. I'll tell you that this was something Ben was excited about, and I'll tell you why. For the last 13 or so years, the old church logo, um, we were informed numerous times, just looked like an upside-down Nintendo symbol from a popular game called Super Smash Brothers. And so we were the Super Smash Brothers church for a long time. We could probably get some fun stuff created out of that, but uh, it was time for just to kind of refresh it. And so um, a lot of the staff members worked really hard with people to design that. You'll start seeing it changed. It's not all at once. We're not like, wait until the big, it's like, no, here's where we're at. And over the next however long, you're going to see it change in different places. So you'll still see the old logo here and there. We'll also see the website updated. Um, It's been long overdue, so that's going to be refreshed here soon. That's not done yet, so you don't need to pull out your devices. And then there's an app um, that's going to make it easy for you to connect here at the church and get signed up for things and learn about things. And so you can get on there. I don't know a lot about that, but I know that on my phone, which is an iPhone, I looked for New Hope in Whitestown, and it popped right up. Um, So any other device, um, good luck. All right. So those are all things um, that you'll start seeing. And and here's the last thing I'd really want to to really emphasize. Um, If you have questions, if you have concerns, if you don't like the way that I just talked through that, just come talk to us. Like after the service, you'll see me in the lobby. Like you can send us an email. And I promise I won't send you an email like you got this week when someone hacked the church database. Uh, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Delete all emails that don't come from new, rob at newhopecc.net. But we're here to talk. And so you can just come up and catch us. We would love to have conversation, answer questions, kind of get input, all of that. We're a church family, and we want to do this together. So let me pray for us, and we'll jump in this morning. Father, I thank you for this place. I, I really do, with, with all my heart. God, you have worked so powerfully through the people in this church And you have changed my life because of it. And I think I echo the testimony of so many people 
this place is special, and it's special because of you and what you're doing. And so we pause this morning to say thank you for that. We also thank you, Father, for your word. And as we open it, we want to learn. We want to be shaped and molded by your word so that we can leave here different than we arrived, but continue to be, become who you've called us to be, who you're shaping us to be, so that we can do what you've called us to do. And we ask you for these blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. There are questions um, that every one of us answer over the course of our life that shape the direction of our life. There are questions that can change who we are if we find the answer to those questions. And I think if we were to sit down and have a conversation uh, over a cup of coffee or sweet tea and we just were talking, I think that if we made a list, if I said, here's my list of the most important questions that I think a person asks in the course of their life, and you did the same, there'd be a lot of overlap. I think that we'd see a lot of common things. There'd be some unique things, I'm sure, that you would view as really important questions that someone needs to ask and answer, and unique ones that I would say they need to ask and answer, but there'd be some overlap as well. So for fun, I randomly asked multiple people this week what they thought the most important questions that a person asks in the course of their life are. And here's some of the answers I got. The very first answer I got from the very first person I asked was this. Where's the bathroom? And I think they're right. That's a really important question to know the answer to. (laughs) Other one's a little more serious. Who loves me? Who loves me? What do I want to do for a living? It's a really important question. Who do I want to marry? Who do I not want to marry? (laughs) How do I want to be remembered? One person took a personal jab at me. Are the Colts going to end up like the Dolphins on a 30-year quest for a quarterback? That's real nice. Um, Where should we live and raise our children? Rent or buy? What do we name our kids? I mean, the list goes on. You're already thinking of some of the questions that you're like, man, those are important questions. I would add this and that. There's a lot of important questions that we ask in the course of our life that they shape us. They can push the direction of our life one way or another based on the answer to the question that we find. And I think that the most important question that every single person has to answer, every person in the world has to answer, regardless of your background or where you grew up, is who is Jesus? Every single person in all of history, I'm not saying just because if you grew up in an area and you're sitting in this room and you go to church and you've been around church and you understand church that you need to answer that question. I'm saying everybody, if you grew up in a hostile environment to the church in a place that didn't want you to recognize who Jesus was, the most important question, I would think central to all of human history is this question, who is Jesus? Now, some of you might be thinking, how do you have the nerve to determine that the central question to all of human history is who is Jesus? I don't think it's that hard to build a case. And I think you can build the case if you even take a step back and say, I'm not just saying it because I'm a preacher, just logically looking at this. If you were to gather a group of educated people, highly educated people into a room, and you you were to get them to create a list of the most impactful people in all of human history, every single person in that room on their list would have to have Jesus, regardless of their background or what they thought. If they're going to be intellectually honest, every single person in history, every, every single person who's like taking a survey of all of history to see who's had the greatest impact would have to include Jesus on their list. Because I do not think you can take an honest survey of human history and ignore the impact 
that Jesus Christ has had on the development of the world. That's regardless of whether or not you believe in Jesus or not. Recognizing historically the figure of Jesus has had a profound impact on the world that we live in. However, simply having a profound impact, perhaps the most profound impact in all of history, is not reason enough to say that the most important question in all of history is answering who he is. Right? Just because he had a big impact doesn't mean that's the most important question for every single individual. So what, why is it? Like, Why is it that we would say that's the most important question? I think you've got to go a little bit further. If you looked at a list of the most important, impactful people in all of history, presidents, world leaders, just figures, all, all kinds of, you can fill in with any person that you want. The only person on the list that ever claimed to be God would be Jesus. I mean, he's the only person who said, the basis of my impact is that I'm God himself. In fact, every other person in history who's ever claimed to be God was discarded as crazy or wrong, and yet Jesus isn't. By a lot of people. And his impact continues to grow even though he's made the claim that discredited so many other people. It has not discredited him. His claim of being God has actually made his impact around the world grow even more, more powerful and wider spread. And so I think the most important question you would come to is if the person who claims to be God himself continues to grow in impact, is not discredited as being crazy and has impacted the formation of culture as we know it, the most important question that you can ask in the formation of your life is who is Jesus? I don't think any thinking person can form a philosophy of life, a view of the way that things work without answering this question. Now, you can answer it in a variety of ways. Some people answer the question of who is Jesus by ignoring it altogether. Other people try to discredit it. And yet many people answer it by saying he is God. And that changes everything in my life because of it. C.S. Lewis famously said, when it comes to Jesus, you have to answer it one of three ways. He's either a liar and everything he said isn't true. And you got to prove that. You can't just say it. You got to prove it. He's a lunatic, meaning he's crazy, and he actually believed that what he said was true, but it wasn't true. And you, again, you have to prove it, or he's Lord. He's one of three things. Either way, the most important forming, shaping question you will ever answer in the course of your life is who is Jesus? Because if he is, in fact, God, it changes everything about you. Everything about your understanding of the way the world works and the purpose of your life. Now, here's the thing. With all of this influence and impact, with all the claims that he made about himself, Jesus never wrote anything down. So the best way for us to begin a journey of answering that important question, who is Jesus, is to rely on the words of his friends. And that's exactly what John claims to be, the disciple whom Jesus loved, a friend of Jesus who wrote down everything he could in a way that would answer that most important question of who is Jesus. If you remember last week, David brilliantly, and I don't say that word lightly, he brilliantly walked us through the purpose of John's writing. In fact, if you didn't watch or listen to that sermon, if you weren't here last Sunday, I want to encourage you to go back. Grab a scripture journal. All right, they're two bucks. I'm not trying to sell you anything. That's what they cost us. That's what you pay for it. Like you grab a scripture journal. Go back and listen to David's sermon from last week. I told him, and I will say it again, it's one of the best sermons I've ever heard. So he walked us through the purpose of John's gospel. And you, you, you listen to that and you think to yourself, man, I'm ready now to journey through why John wrote, like what John wrote, because now I know why he wrote it. 
Now, I'm not going to revisit all of that, but there's one thing I want to point out that's going to help us for today in our study of John chapter 1. If you remember that the other Gospels, they were written toward the middle of the first century, right? Not long after the resurrection of Jesus. Around, he's resurrected around 33 AD. They were written in around the middle of that century. John's Gospel, though, was written at 85 AD, toward the end of that first century. Here's why I think that that's really important. John is the only Gospel written to people similar to us that are looking for the answer to the question, who is Jesus, who did not have the gift of actually seeing and witnessing physically Jesus' ministry on this earth. They had to rely on the words of Jesus' friends as well because they're a generation away from even the resurrection of Jesus. And that tells me a couple different things about why John wrote and who he was writing to. The first group he's writing, and many people will tell you this if you want to, like, hey, if you are just starting out in your faith, a good book to go to is John. And I think they're right. It's a great place to start in your Bible reading. But they'll say that John's primary focus was evangelistic. He was writing so that non-believers would come to believe. And I agree with that, almost. I agree that John's writing was evangelistic in nature. He was writing so that non-believers would come to believe. But in addition to that, that word that he writes in John chapter 20, when translated, doesn't just encompass the non-believer. It also encompasses, as David walked us through last week, the believer who is wrestling with doubts. So here's what we're saying. In a quest to answer who is Jesus, John wants the non-Christian who's never answered that question in their life. I don't know the answer. I've not explored the answer. Who is Jesus? I don't know what to do with the answer to this question. John's writing so that they could, for the very first time, encounter to the answer, the answer to the most important question in their life. But he's also writing to the person who has already answered that question, who is Jesus, and needs to return to that question again and again to be reaffirmed in answering yet again the most important question that they've ever answered in their life. He's writing to both. He's writing to the person who's never answered it and to the person who needs to answer it yet again because they're walking through some doubts and they're wrestling through some things. This is why he's writing it. I love the way that St. Augustine summarized John's gospel. He said, John's gospel is deep enough for an elephant to swim. So it's deep enough for the believer who's journeying with Jesus many, many years and still learning new perspectives and new things. And yet it's shallow enough for a child not to drown. So for the very first time, somebody encountering Jesus, John's gospel is written in a way that they can interact with it. And the most intelligent, longest, longest faithful Christian can also continue to be challenged by the words of John's gospel. And right off the bat, As John starts his gospel in chapter 1, he's going to tell us some things that are really, really important about answering the question, who is Jesus? Would you stand for the reading of God's word? In John chapter 1, John introduces us to Jesus this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is God's word. You can be seated. Now, John uses a really interesting way to introduce us to Jesus. If you remember, as you read through your Gospels, Matthew and, Mark will, Matthew and Luke will start with the birth narrative of Jesus. They'll tell the story of Jesus' birth. Mark starts with his ministry. And John starts in a really unique way. He says, in the beginning was the word. And this word that he chooses, that we translate word, is the Greek word logos. 
Okay, I'm going with that pronunciation. You can go with logos. I'm going with logos. I'm just going to stick to it. Okay, it says it's the logos. That's an interesting word that he chooses there. And in Greek literature, it had really two different meanings. It could be this kind of force that held things together, the logos. It's this idea, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. It's also the very word. It's not the common word for word. It carries more weight. It's this powerful, creative force of a word. It speaks and things happen. And instantly, when you open John's gospel and you begin to read, in the beginning was the word, if you know your Bible, you're immediately drawn to where John wants you to be drawn because he's making a very declarative point about who Jesus is right off the bat. And John chapter 1 reads a lot like Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, that says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And the writer of Genesis will then walk us through how God began to create from nothing. And it said he would speak, and things would happen. John wants that image in your mind when you begin to think about Jesus. He says, in the beginning, meaning pre-existing to time and space, Jesus was there. Jesus was there in the beginning before things were created, and in him all things found their creation. He is making a declarative statement, and for the sake of staying clear and simple this morning, here's what he's saying. Jesus is God. He is God. Right off the bat. He is God. He existed before time and space. He was a part of creating everything. He is God. And yet that other meaning to logos, that force that holds all things together, I think John may have had that in mind as well. See, around 500 BC, that's 50 years before Ezra and Nehemiah showed up in the town of Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the walls. Way over in the city of Ephesus, there was this Greek philosopher by the name of Heraclitus. Everybody say Heraclitus to make me feel like I said it right. Heraclitus. Heraclitus. All right. Brilliant man. Brilliant man. Known for his intelligence. People wanted to hear him teach, but also didn't want to be around him because he was pessimistic. In his teaching, he would reveal that there was not a lot of purpose to things and that you're headed for doom. Really fun person to be around. But before he died, he did make a positive observation. He was studying the world and the way that things interacted and worked together. And he made this observation that there seems to be some sort of a force that takes things that seem meaningless and makes them work together and creates purpose out of them. It gives a sense that everything has an order and a harmony to it. It's not just a meaningless thing that when attached to this force, you get something new. And he labeled that force Logos. He said, this logos, this force, some of you Star Wars fans are getting excited. You're like, is that where it came from? It's like, that's what he says. And he illustrates it this way. He uses two things. He says, look at this stick, and he'll hold up a stick. He says, the two ends, this stick is kind of meaningless. But if attached to the right force, you put an arrow on it, some feathers on it, you attach it to a bow, and all of a sudden, it's able to protect you. It now has a meaning and a purpose. It can provide food. It can protect you from harm. He said, in the same way, look at this stick. Two ends, it has no meaning, but if you attach the right things to it and put some strings to it, now it's a beautiful harp that can create music and protect your mind from being damaged by the world around you. He says, alone, it means nothing. Connected to the right things, it has purpose and meaning, and now everything seems to flow together and connect and have this new thing. And he summarized that this is what he meant with logos. It's a force and a power that makes everything in your life have meaning and purpose. And unfortunately, he left it there. 
He said, and that's what it is. It's just this force. And so this teaching grew. Well, 500 years later, the apostle John comes along. And he takes that word logos that had an understanding in their culture of being a force that created meaning to everything else. And he said, you're right, there is a force that puts meaning and purpose to everything else around it. It holds all things together, but it's not an impersonal force. It's a person. And it's the person of Jesus Christ. And so what John is saying right off the bat is that Jesus is the logos. He's the force that creates everything. And he's also the force that holds everything that's been created together, meaning he gives every created thing purpose and meaning and helps you understand why it works the way it does and why it goes the way it does. I love the way that Paul would write this to the church in Colossae. He said, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him and through him all things were made. Everything was made by Jesus and everything was made through him and all things are held together because of Jesus. See, uh, Murray Harris, in his commentary on John, translated John chapters uh, 1, verses 1 and 2 this way. I love his translation. It really helps us kind of wrap our mind around what John is saying here in these verses. He said this, At the very beginning of creation and time, the Word, the Logos, Jesus, as the perfect expression of God the Father, had already always existed. And this Word was in active communion with God. And this Word inherently shared the same nature as God. He's saying here that he had this beautiful connection, this intimacy with the Father, and at the same time is in the very nature of the Father. He's speaking Trinity language. He's saying that Jesus exists as the Son, but is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one, sharing that same nature, making a declarative statement once again, Jesus is God. John will further explain this connection to the Father down in verse 18 when he says these words. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship. If you have a Bible, you can underline that. Is in closest relationship with the Father and has made him known. So he says you can't see God without seeing Jesus. Jesus, if you want to know God and you want to know about God, look at Jesus. That's what John is telling us. He's the only way for you to get a glimpse and understand and know and have a personal relationship with God. And I think it's actually found in that word with. He says he is in closest relationship with God, meaning there's this perfect relationship with the Father. They share everything and know everything. Nothing's hidden. Nothing's not known. Let me illustrate it for you this way, this closest relationship concept. Let's say you're laying down on the couch this afternoon like I will be, okay? You're laying on the couch. I won't make a joke. Let's just say you're watching something on TV, okay? <laughs> but you're just laying there. Maybe you're getting ready to doze off. Who in your life, don't answer this out loud, who in your life has permission and is comfortable enough to lay on top of you on that couch and cuddle up next to you? The list is very short for me, okay? Very short. If I'm laying on the couch and someone comes and lays on me to cuddle with me, the list includes my wife, Sarah, and my four children. And that's it. That's it. Nobody who's coming over for lunch is allowed to do that. No other family members are allowed to do that. Nobody else has permission to experience that kind of intimate relationship with me. And here's the thing. When it comes to my kids, eventually... That won't be the case. They'll get married, and if I'll go over to their house for dinner, and that ain't happening, 
right? Like, no, like you don't, right? So it's, we narrow it down, really. Like as you get older, the person who has permission to experience an intimate relationship with me all the time is Sarah. It's my wife. At any point, she can come up and cuddle up next to me at any time. Some of you are like, I'm married and that's not allowed. It's still, right? You see what I'm saying. She can do that. And in that marriage relationship, we get a glimpse of what we're talking about here in this closest relationship, this perfect relationship. But here's the thing. It's not perfect. It's not perfect. It's a glimpse. It's a shadow. It's an idea. But it's not the real thing. You see, when I'm with Sarah, she's the closest person that I'm related to in this world. She knows more about me than any other human being knows. The good, the bad, everything in between. We have this great, as far as human relationships go, the closest of relationships. But even in that, no matter how close we are, there's two problems with that. One, I don't fully know me. I want to learn more about me and why I do things, all that. But I don't fully know me, so I can't possibly fully know every single thing about her. And it's not because we don't share things. We share everything with each other. There's nothing off limits, and yet it's still imperfect. And what John is saying here is this. That's not the case with God and Jesus. Jesus was in perfect relationship with the Father, shared nature with the Father, complete and total unity with the Father, explaining once again, Jesus is God. So the beginning to the most important question that we ask in life is he had this perfect relationship. Marriages on their best days don't experience that. They're just a glimpse of it. We don't fully understand it because we can't experience it. But we understand what John is saying about Jesus. He's in perfect, total unity with the Father. And so what, what does this mean when it says, okay, he is God. He's in perfect relationship with the Father. And we want to know who he is. And we want to see God and know God. What John is saying, the very first thing you have to do if you ever want to know God is to look at Jesus. That is the only way to know him. Well, throughout your Bible, there's other passages that help us understand this. One of my favorites is in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. The writer of Hebrews describes Jesus this way. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. The exact imprint. So radiance and imprint. He's the radiance of God, of his glory. He's the only way for you to see God's glory is the radiance. It's through Jesus. And he's the exact imprint of God's nature. Let's, let's break this down. Radiance. You think of radiance, I think of the sun. I don't know how much you've studied this, but the sun is so powerful that even at 93 million miles away from us, it can burn our skin. And even at 1% less, if you just came to 92 million miles away from us, we wouldn't live to experience the burn. It's perfectly positioned and unbelievably powerful. If you want to get technical about it, you can't see the internal atomic reactions that make the sun the sun. The sun is a gigantic ball of nuclear fusion. Its core is 500 million metric tons of hydrogen fusing into helium, helium every single second. You're welcome. Okay? That process blows my mind. Right? It blows my mind. But what you would never say is, from 93 million miles away, going out on a sunny day that we don't have in this time of the year, but if you go out on a sunny day and you look up and do what you tell your kids not to do and you look up at the sun, you would never say, I can see the radiance of the sun, but I don't know where the sun is. You would never say that because you know if I see the radiance off of the sun, I see the sun. And the writer of Hebrews is saying the same thing. I see the radiance of God's glory in the person of Jesus Christ. What he's saying is you see God. When you see Jesus, you see God. 
He is the radiance of the glory of God. I want to see and know who God is. I want to know why I'm here. He's saying, look at Jesus. He's the only way that you'll ever get to see God. But he also calls him the imprint. The writer of Hebrews identifies Jesus as the exact imprint of God's nature. I want you to think about this as a signet ring, okay? A signet ring. Now, you know much about these. You would heat up wax, and you would take the face of that ring and press it down into the wax to seal envelopes and messages and scrolls and all kinds of things. And you know that when these things were sent to somebody, when they received the letter, they received the message, when they saw that signet ring, they knew whose authority that carried without question because that imprint was the exact picture of the ring of the person who sent that letter. And so it was never a question. You see the imprint, you see the ring. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. I want to know what God is like. I don't just want to see God. But I want to know what God is like. I got to watch Jesus. I got to think about Jesus. I got to look at how Jesus interacted. I want to know how God would respond to a certain situation. I want to look at the exact imprint of God's nature. I want to look at Jesus. Why? Because to see the imprint of his nature is to see him. How would God respond in this situation? Why did God do this? Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. I love the way that C.S. Lewis explained this process. I mean, because this is what John's telling us. You want to know what it's like to follow God? You just got to look at the life of Jesus. And for the rest of his gospel, he's going to say, watch this. You want to know what the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature looks like? You want to know what it's like to look at the one who was in the beginning? I'm about to tell you about him, and he's going to explain the life of Jesus. You want to know how to live and to pursue? You want to know how to find the answer to the most important question you will ever ask? Watch Jesus. And C.S. Lewis explained that thinking this way. I love this. He said, I believe in Christianity in the same way and for the same reasons that I believe that the Son has risen. And he believes that for two reasons. He says, I believe in the Son, not only because I can see it, which you can see it, but also because by the Son I see everything else. It's a perfect summary of John. He's saying, not only do I believe in Jesus being God because I can see that he created everything else and I understand that he was in the beginning and he created, but because when I follow him, it makes sense of everything else. He's the logos. He's the one who created it all and he's the one who holds it all together. So I want to know how to live my life. I want to understand why I'm here. I want to understand the purpose. I want to know how to do these different things. What he's saying is watch Jesus because you'll understand where that came from and you'll understand really clearly what it looks like how that thing works and how to interact in your life. You want to know why you're here and the truth about the world and the place that you live in? John's saying you got to start with the truth of Jesus. The most important question that you will ever ask in your life, and I would add to that the most important question that you will continue to ask for the rest of your life, is who is Jesus? Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for Jesus, for making a way for us to have a personal relationship with you. But God, even in addition to that, that personal connection that we have to you, God, you have shown us where all of this came from. To understand that Jesus is the Logos. He's the one who created. He's the one who sustains and holds things together. That when we see him, we see you. Father, thank you. And God, we thank you that you've given us your word to learn about the life of Jesus, to study his life. And as we journey through the gospel of John and learn more and more about Jesus, my prayer is that it would shape and mold more and more of us to be who you've called us to be so we can accomplish what you've called us to accomplish. 
God, thank you for this time. And we offer these next few moments of worship in response to the Logos, our King Jesus. We ask you for these things in his name. And all God's people said,